0: Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos, como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además, tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7,99. Y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos, hasta las 3 p.m. Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters se excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.
1: From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you this time. Gene Healy is here from the Cato Institute. Uh, It is one of the leading think tanks in the United States nation's capital, and he's here to join us on the Hill this time. Gene, how are you?
2: Great. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, It's good to have you here uh, because in the past of the times I've talked to you, it's usually in response to some news story we're reporting on. So we come to you and we'll, we'll get analysis of you, but we've never actually kind of sat down and, and, and talked about some of the things that, that Cato works on. I, I've always found Cato one of the most fascinating think tanks in town because of the unpredictability of some of the uh, analysis that comes out of uh, uh, your experts and your fellows. You're not easy to pin down. And you do kind of look at all sides of an issue. Uh, Cato's always been thought of as a, a libertarian outfit. Talk to people about what that is. In, in your view, in your mind, was libertarianism?
2: Well, the shorthand we often use is uh, socially liber- liberal, fiscally conservative. Uh, you know, we tend to believe with uh, Thomas Jefferson that that government is best which governs least. And so that does lead to... Uh, Positions that seem, well, seem because they are off the uh, typical red-blue uh, access.
1: Which is funny because you know I hear so many people describe themselves as that, but don't describe themselves as libertarians. Do you? Do you hear that as well too?
2: Yeah. Or you also hear people uh, describe themselves <laughs> as libertarians who really aren't. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's. Uh, it's. Libertarian philosophy does tend to have a, a lot of appeal uh, for uh, people who would uh, like to be left alone uh, to pursue their dreams in the way that they, uh, that, that they see fit. And uh, I think the more you look at areas of heavy govern- government involvement, uh, the more uh, skeptical you tend to grow about uh, government's capacity to solve all our problems.
1: A lot of people may remember, you know, especially in presidential years, There will be libertarian presidential candidates. Gary Johnson uh, last time out was the libertarian uh, candidate for president Bill Bill Weld, was the vice presidential uh, nominee. But traditionally, they are not have not been in their elected careers libertarians. So my question to you is, why is it that every four years, say, some Democrat or some Republican Will suddenly declare themselves a libertarian, and then go off on, run on a on a libertarian platform, but yet not really be a year-round three hundred sixty-five day libertarian.
2: I think with our, you know, first past the post electoral system, you tend to get two parties in American history. Uh, you know, we've had major third party movements, but they usually get absorbed by one or the other major party. Uh, so, you know, the Cato Institute has no connection with the, yeah. uh, capital L libertarian right. party. Uh, right. certainly, uh, many of us are sympathetic to, to what they're doing, but, uh, you know, it, it's usually ideas, whether it's progressive ideas, socialist ideas, or, uh, libertarian ideas, uh even if there are third-party campaigns, they end up getting absorbed by mm. the major parties. And we
1: talk about this in broad spectrum as well, too, because uh, you, you make a very important point. The Cato Institute is, is, is a separate entity, uh, in fact, from the, the Libertarian Party itself. You are, however, you know, the, the leading philosophical and analysis uh, uh, place that people turn to to, to to get that kind of analysis. Um, when we did the television show this morning uh, we we talked about uh, what the role of the executive branch in this uh, city is right now you did a book back in 2008 called the cult of the presidency Uh, I read it Um, that book was mainly about the presidency of George W. Bush but it talked in larger terms as far as how the presidency in a larger sense has kind of spilled over its Boundaries that it's doing things now, and I'm talking about in general, that it wasn't designed to do. When you look back on that book now here in 2019, it seems to me a lot of the stuff you wrote about came true, <laughs> uh, not only uh, through the Obama administration, but we see it now into the Trump administration as well, too.
2: Yeah, you, I guess an author's always hoping that their book will be relevant, uh, but maybe I- a. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want it to stay relevant for so long. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think uh, what people are seeing in the, the, uh, the Trump administration uh, is some of the dangers that, that we, we've put ourselves uh, up for when we concentrate so much power in one branch. It's important to remember, you know, Donald Trump didn't invent the imperial presidency. He, he inherited it. And uh, his two predecessors in particular— handed him over the keys to, you know, an engine of enormous power. And uh, there's this phrase that uh, Dick Cheney, I think, uh, uh, most often liked to say about how uh, the Bush administration's goal was to leave the presidency stronger than than they found it. And they did, mission accomplished, and uh, Obama did as well. And when that keeps happening, you, you get an office that is... Far more powerful than it was ever intended to be, and far more powerful, sorry, far more powerful than any one fallible human being ought to be trusted with.
1: One of the things that I took away from from the book was, especially when it dealt with the George W. Bush presidency, was looking at war powers. That this was something that was crafted um, to make sure that a president did not deploy U.S. forces over and above. Uh, what Congress uh, was comfortable or or supportive of. It it seems, though, that that problem has only gotten worse, that the executive branch, whether it be George W. Bush, whether it be Barack Obama, whether it now be Donald J. Trump, continues on that path of seeming to operate outside of what was constructed as a a check and balance.
2: That's absolutely right. Uh, You know, the president was understood by the framers to have some defensive powers, the power to repel sudden attacks. Uh but his inherent war powers, defensive powers didn't give him the power to launch sudden attacks anywhere he he would choose anywhere in the world. And especially after 9/11 we've seen uh you know a almost the normalization of war. You know, before 9/11 you would have uh you know an attack in panama and grenada uh bombing of bosnia but these were departures from sort of the baseline of peace Mm -hmm. what's happened after 9 11 is we've gone into a permanent presidential war mode where we're bombing half a dozen countries uh on a semi-regular basis and we barely notice it anymore and the president is is uh empowered to you know we're moving 2000 troops into Saudi Arabia these are all unilateral decisions decisions made entirely within one branch and that's very dangerous uh when there, there's no more important decision that a constitutional republic can make than the decision to between war and peace and that's why the The Constitution leaves that decision to the most broadly representative body, Congress. There's
1: a flip side of this at times, too, though, is that when Congress is presented with an opportunity to vote, such as during the Iraq War, whether or not to go to war in Iraq, they cast these votes and then later on (laughs) are met with the consequence of that. I remember Hillary Clinton spent a lot of time trying to explain her vote on the Iraq War. Are... Members of Congress complicit in this that maybe they don't quite want to be.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It's a it's it's at least as much congressional abdication as it is uh, executive power grabbing. Uh, Yeah. The Iraq war is a perfect example. They structured that vote in a way that it left the ultimate decision to. Uh, George W. Bush, and then a lot of uh, candidates, Hillary in the next round, uh, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, any any number of others. You know, they were against it before they were for it, before they were against it. Uh, They they run from accountability, uh, you know, as fast as they can. And a lot of members of Congress would prefer to just punt this decision to the executive. And if the war goes well, they can take credit for it. And if it doesn't. Uh, they can blame the president for it. So it's definitely uh, both both Congress and the executive that are responsible for this.
1: Right now, the fourth time in our history, uh, Washington is mired in talk of impeachment. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, announced that she was uh, greenlighting an official impeachment inquiry, and now subpoenas are flying, testimonies being delivered, questions are rising, and once again. Uh, we face a scenario where a presidential impeachment appears uh to be rolling down the tracks um you'd mentioned on television today that uh andrew johnson coming out of the civil war and then we had a break we had a break until 1974 with Watergate. over 100 years yeah over 100 years we've now are in our third in the last 50 years what do you make of this analytically right now? Are 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 we in a situation where every time there is a party out of power which is out of the power in the White House, but they control a house, the House of Representatives that we could be theoretically looking at an impeachment or is this a unique situation with Donald Trump right now and that that cycle is moving through?
2: I think it's 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 too early to say whether we've entered a an era of more regular impeachments you know you got basically four data points uh and so it's hard to hard to draw like too confidently draw a a trend um i my sense is that it took a long time uh to get here uh you know certainly there's been more impeachment talk since even since the trump even before he was inaugurated uh but uh, it took a long time for the Democratic leadership to, to get here because impeachment, when it's polled, is usually not popular, particularly with, with independents. People don't want to see it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, we didn't, in, in the Obama presidency, there wasn't a single, I checked, there wasn't a single actual uh, impeachment resolution ever introduced. And that's something that any congressman can do. You know, usually dies in committee, but mm-hmm. any congressman can do this. Couple in the Bush administration, but so I don't see this this pattern that that we're, we've suddenly opened Pandora's box and we're going to be impeaching every president, uh, you know, from here on out.
1: There were some low grade moves during the Obama administration. I remember at one point, uh, Eric Holder, the Attorney General, was held in right. contempt. Uh But but you're, you're correct in saying that the, the Republicans at the time that they controlled the House did not launch anything in that scope. Of the Obama presidency Um, when we look at the situation right now though with the House and the Senate so polarized politically uh, is it safe to assume that even if the House were to successfully pass articles of impeachment and send them over to the Senate that it may be unlikely that the Senate were to either take them up or hold a trial or do anything which would conclude this process?
2: I think they're going to hold a trial. McConnell has said that, and he seems to be, uh, by the Senate rules, some kind of, somewhat hamstrung to, uh, you know, even if he wanted to, to quash the thing entirely. Uh, you know, the smart money would say that uh, since you need 20 Republican senators to cross the aisle and vote to convict— that that's not going to happen. But these things are extremely unpredictable. And uh, you know, the the Fox poll that came out last week, if that's accurate, 51% for uh, impeachment and removal, Richard Nixon didn't get to that point until the summer of 74, uh, a month or so before he was forced out of office. So that's pretty dramatic. And that could, uh, you know, if if that trend, you know keeps showing up you may see a uh, significant republican defections
1: when uh you look at the political discourse in this country right now i don't i don't think it's ever well in my lifetime i can't think of it being more polarized than it is right now i'm sure you know the civil war was <laughs> pretty pretty divisive at the time um one of the things cato talks about is is um showing uh almost a third way forward um is there a voice for libertarianism at this time where it seems so divided between democrats and republicans that there could be a legitimate uh path forward as far as maybe a a libertarian uh swell coming and emerging from all of this
2: i certainly hope so i think Congress is more divided than maybe we are as a people. Uh, It's easy to think uh, that everyone's at each other's throats, particularly if you spend too much time marinated in Twitter. Uh, I took it off my phone a while back. Uh, But I think that some of our technology seems to exacerbate these divisions. There's no doubt that that, that Congress is more polarized than it than it has been in modern history. Uh, but I, I do think people uh, are sick of the red team, blue team, you know, blood war.
1: It's also not very reflective of where people probably are at in their lives, too. You know, you mentioned at the top, you know, one of the ideas of being fiscally conservative but socially progressive is something that, people on both sides may espouse it at times but don't necessarily see themselves as a d or an r
2: yeah they don't get the uh, those both of those options on the menu uh, w- with uh, party politics too often uh, you know I, I think congress is always a lagging indicator of where the american people are and uh you know the they'll be the last to uh, to to embrace a, a different way but uh You know, certainly what we're we're doing now uh, doesn't seem to be working, so uh, perhaps this will emerge.
1: As we head into this presidential election now, um, there has been a struggle on the Democratic side as far as um, who can be the most progressive, but at the same time, who can be the best general election candidate. And to me, in in my view of it, I, I... I find that those two things are at cross opposites of each other, that it's not just about on the Democratic side who's the most progressive, but you also have to keep an eye on looking towards who is the strongest general election candidate. Uh, What do you make of the struggle that's going on right now for kind of the soul of the Democratic nominee, but yet who
2: could appeal
1: to the most general election votes?
2: Well, I'm not a—you a, know, I, I don't put much stock in my ability as a political analyst rather than a policy analyst. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you the one Democratic candidate uh, who who said something that was music to my ears was, a, a, if you remember, uh, Michael Bennett. He's a senior mm-hmm. senator from uh, Colorado where he said— uh, If you vote for me, you won't have to think about me for two weeks at a time. (laughs) You know, you can go on about your life, you know, raise your kids. And uh, I, you know, to me, that's a winning message. It hasn't really vaulted him in the polls. It
1: kind of gets back to the point of, of the book, though, is that this job, this presidency was not designed to be a king, was not designed to be. Above all others, it was a branch that was co-equal to the other two branches, the Supreme Court and and the legislative. But it has grown wildly outside of its
2: bounds. Yeah, and we've also invested it with uh, all sorts of significance that it was never supposed to have. You know, the president wasn't supposed to be responsible for the state of the national soul and for overcoming malaise and all that. I mean, it'd be ridiculous to think— the process that, through which we get these people, than any of them is going to heal the national soul. Uh, and, you know, I think we need to get back to a more workaday business-like uh, view of this office. I
1: was talking to a friend of mine who's a diplomat from overseas, and they were making the point where, you know, although the United States broke off from Great Britain, uh, from the monarchy, Great Britain now, if you look at their system of government, has done a much better job of keeping the prime minister in check than the United States has now done in creating what has become this imperial presidency for both Democrats and Republicans.
2: I think uh, the parliamentary system has some serious advantages, uh, also some disadvantages, but one of the reasons they've been able to keep uh, the executive in check or the uh, the head of government in check is it's so much easier to remove a prime minister than it is to remove a a president. Uh, You know, if, uh bill clinton had been a prime minister donald trump had been a prime minister they would have been turfed out almost immediately a vote of no confidence or uh you know over over a party conference uh that's what happened to margaret thatcher uh wouldn't even need a vote of the house of commons and it seems to me that's uh i i think people worry too much about impeachment but but it's it's not the best system you You have to go through this, uh, you know, months long process uh, Mm -hmm. to to get rid of somebody that's not performing. And it's unless you count Richard Nixon, who wasn't formally impeached but was driven from office, Mm -hmm. it's basically never worked.
1: Gene Healy's with the Cato Institute. He's been kind enough to join us on the Hill podcast this time. Gene, we thank
2: you. Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: All right, we thank you as well, too, from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the On the Hill podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We'll see you back here
2: next time. Uh, sorry about that. You did say it was unidirectional.
0: Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos, como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además, tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7,99. Y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos, hasta las 3 p.m. Nochebuena. JCPenney. Celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters se excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.